paloma ya voló. Oh, oh ay, marinero navegó. Hi everyone, my name is Leticia Peguero and thank you for joining me on Out of the Margins, where we're defining youth justice one podcast at a time. Thank you, thank you everyone for joining us once again on Out of the Margins. So we spent the past few months, for those that have been following us, talking about uh, transformative justice. And this episode, we're going to talk about transformative justice as it relates to the issue of immigration. So, you know, these days, anybody follows the news, and even if you don't follow it that closely, um, you hear uh, immigration over and over and over again. And there's uh, the issue with DACA and the dreamers and the young people that were brought here as children. There's the issue of the wall. There's the term that um, I'm actually going to use family migration because I, you know, as some of you know, I think we on the progressive end sometimes use language that is not created by us or for us. Um, and so there's, right, there's the language that, that sort of words that have come out to, um, to insinuate change. So today I'm super excited to introduce Ernesto Lopez and Lady Robledo from Puente Human Rights, Arizona. Hi guys, thank you so much for being on Out of the Margins. Hello, thank you for having us. Hi, thank you for inviting us. Thank you, thank you guys. So to be completely transparent, uh, you know, Puente is a partner of the Andres Family Fund. And so, um, you know, we've built a relationship with them over the past couple of years, but I'm excited to have them on. So let's start, you guys, with the current uh, uh, conversation on immigration that's happening in the United States right now. Um, love to hear what you all think about it at Puente. And at Puente, you guys talk about the Puente movement. Uh, I love that. So tell us a little bit about what, what the Puente movement is, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on the current conversation about immigration in the U.S. Puente started about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, it was really during a time where... Um, there was a lot of, uh, not a lot many organizations here in, uh, in Phoenix. Um, there wasn't a lot of, of unity among the different organizations or activists that were organizing, particular on immigration. This was a time when Arpaio was really going after our community. Um, so uh, the founders of Puente, Salvador Reza and Carlos Garcia, um, decided to, you know, a really center a movement around human rights. Um, mm -hmm. We do primarily work on immigration, but we, we do consider ourselves a human rights organization. Um, we're working for human rights um, in the sector of immigration. Um, and the Puente movement came as, you know, uh, where the goal of the organization was to unite um, these different activists, different people that were trying to work together and never were able to work together, to unite them to work for a one, on one front, um, to the fight towards human rights, and particularly around immigration. How does the organization today and the work that Puente is doing reflect what, what the initial dreams of the original founders? Like, is it different? Does the work look different? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, I think we've, we've expanded our work. Uh, when we initially started, it was uh, really a, a fight against uh, Arpaio and really trying to figure out how to, how to combat Arpaio, and then from there, it went on to how to combat uh, harsh immigration. Uh, and we've been true to that. We're really about fighting, finding different loopholes, 
finding different ways to combat harsh immigration, whether it be nationally, locally, on the state level. Um, and I think we, we figured out how to do that really well. Uh, I think we're probably the, one of the experts in the nation on how to combat um, harsh immigration uh, at different levels. Um, but the, what we have done, we have expanded. Um, so right now we're like, we have a youth program mm -hmm. that's focusing on the cops out of campus. Um, and it's a way to, to combat um, ICE and immigration, but at the school level, and it's really beyond that. I think we've expanded to not just thinking about uh, immigration, but kind of thinking about immigration in, in the broader system of incarceration. Mm. And really think about how incarceration uh, and immigration and detention are all one big system of discrimination and uh, towards people of color. Yeah, I would also add that what makes Puente different, and um, because I've been around I met a lot of organizations working in the in the movement for, for like for for immigration reform, and I think what makes Puente different has been that we we have always um, tried to fight enforcement first. So then that's where the strategies around fighting uh, like immigration cases came about, and that's even how we um, ex uh, like explored different areas like looking into like the school to prison pipeline. So we've always looked at the, at the enforcement piece. And I think it's because of our understanding that all these laws that impact immigrants um, are there to like really try to, um, trying to attack our lifestyle, our well-being as immigrants. And so I think that um, when, when we, it's a very different approach to fighting uh, for, for, for immigrant rights. Um, and so for us, we, we've never been stuck on a policy. We have never fought for a particular policy, right? We're actually trying to better the lives of immigrants. Okay. I want to ask a question to you both about this, this language that you use, harsh immigration, combating harsh immigration. What does that mean? In Arizona, the reason we pretty started to fight harsh immigration, because we didn't see, a, we didn't see a, a, an opportunity to pass any other form of, of, of positive legislation. At the time we were in a, in a state where it was a super majority Republican and they were passing all sorts of um, anti-immigrant legislation and that either was ways to deport people easier or even ways to make people's har lives uh, hard, harsher. For example, those, those things took place as in uh, banning uh, driver license for people who don't have documents. So now people couldn't, couldn't work uh, couldn't go to work, and if they went to work, they were risking uh, getting arrested, which in turn made people made it really easy for you to get arrested when landed you in jail, and also landed you made you able to get deported. Um, also, the expansion of really, which um, really started under President Bush, but also grew under President Obama, the expansion of our criminal justice system tied to our immigration system. About 15 years ago, it was unheard of for ICE agents to be inside of the prisons or inside of the jails. Uh, and because of, of these last two presidents, now almost every single uh, prison or jail inside the, the country has a, an ICE agent in some form, either electronic version or an actual physical ICE agent. So now any person that gets contact with, with the criminal justice system automatically becomes a contact with the, the immigration system. And these two systems weren't uh, together before and they just be, became attached and they're almost synonymous now. Um, and then also other laws to make it harder for people to, to just live, um, not being able to, to go to school. So you have now in Arizona, 
Uh, if you're undocumented, you have to pay out-of-state tuition. Um, it's harder for your children to get uh, benefits, even though they're citizens. Um, uh, and then it's just making it really easy for, for uh, people to get deported. Uh, for example, um, mandatory uh, jail times. Uh, we had to combat many, many laws here that made it uh, mandatory jail times for un undocumented people. Um, just for the sole fact that you being undocumented, you have to go to, to harsher uh, penalties in, inside the jail systems. Um, and just all these conglomerate of laws. And then the most famous one here in Arizona is SB 1070, which yeah. pretty much made every police officer an ICE agent. So any police officer can pretty much go out and ask you for their, for their documentation. So it really streamlines the, the deportation process and makes it super easy for anybody for any reason, uh, whether they committed a crime, didn't commit a crime, to so come into contact with, with, uh, with ICE and get deported. And they're, it's creating a false narrative of, of who immigrants are and what they do and how they don't or do contribute to the country. Lady, I want to turn to you for a second because, um, you know, I, I saw on your bio that, you know, you used to work with um, uh, jóvenes, Padres y Jóvenes Unidos in, in Colorado and so have had a long time of youth organizing. How, how does youth organizing and organizing in general um, but especially for young people, how does this play itself out? What does it look like to organize young people against these policies of, of really dehumanizing um, immigrants and, and people, um, people that are, are trying to, you know, coming to the United States for, for better lives? How, how does organizing, what does it look like and, and how does it work? Yeah, so Conversations to Start, um, this youth program really took off actually on the uh, on election day when um when trump was elected on election day those those young people organized walk walk up through um throughout the city all of the week after um elections were won and i think through all throughout january when he was when actually he actually took office that was a big moment for us to realize like there's all these young people that are really upset um that so like that they're 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 trying to understand how this happened. They're not happy uh, with where things were heading. Um, and so we needed to create a space for them where we're actually developing them into like real organizers and that we're actually like really involving them in, the, in politics and just not just in, in the walkout, right? And so I think that that's where um, when they really decided to commit itself to developing a program for young people. And so as, as Trump, you know, started, took office a year ago, and uh, the first thing he did was change the immigration priorities, yeah. and as all these different discussions were having, like the city, the city of Phoenix was debating whether um, we were going to continue to, uh, whether their police were going to continue to enforce SB 1070, mm -hmm. so as all these conversations started happening, um, our young people started to really talk about, wait, so what does policing in our neighborhood um, look like and what are the risks that come with the, the, the current practices? And so I think from there is where we really start developing um, this campaign um, is with the realization that, th that the school police uh, who, are, who are employers, their Phoenix police um, are putting young people at risk right now when they come in contact with students, when they arrest students, because they're still following SB 1070 here in the state. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and then he's having these conversations, also realizing the lack of accountability with these police officers because they're in the schools, but the principals are technically not their, they're not their supervisors, right? And so all these different stories started coming out, which really made us launch this campaign um, that we currently have. Uh, but our goal really is, is to reduce that contact between law enforcement and our youth of color, um, and particularly our immigrant youth of color, mm-hmm. because you know here in Arizona that actually puts you at risk for deportations. And I think this becomes a really, really big priority as we start realizing that all the tools we had to fight deportation cases, uh, you know, Trump started taking those tr- those tools away right away as soon as he took office. And mm-hmm. so now we know that once they're in that system, once they're in that deportation process, it's almost impossible to stop it. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's like going back to the beginning and yeah. trying to prevent that con- that initial contact. You know, I, I, I'm assuming that if you live in Arizona, everybody knows who Joe Arpaio is. And he, you know, for those that don't, we should remember that the current president pardoned him after he had been uh, found guilty. But can you all tell us um, what was the impact of, of, a, of a sheriff, Joe Arpaio, on not just on the, on the laws, right? And like how things were implemented, but just on the lives of regular people, right? Like what, do, what does it mean? What did it mean to, to have him, you know, leading law enforcement. Um, and what does it mean that he's been pardoned? Like, what does that, what does that do to, 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 to the work? And well, I think uh, just because we're talking about the young people, right? Um, mm-hmm. Joe Pio had been sheriff for so long, like over 20 years. Yeah. And like this generation of young people didn't know any other sheriff besides Joe Arpaio, right? And I think that that for them standing up and like participating in that campaign that that you know took him out of office um, gives a very clear message of like who the new generation is and what mm-hmm. the political future of Arizona really is. And so for us, like that's also why we saw it very important to like continue to engage those young people right beyond this election. Um, and I think that the other piece on around there is that. Um, now that we have this new sheriff, right, like, there's, there's still a lot of things that really haven't, like, it's not just about changing the person. That's um, right. I think, I, I think that, yes, Arpaio had created this culture of fear um, in, in, in our neighborhoods and everything, but it just didn't end once you switched the person, right, especially when you still got ice in those jails. When, um, yeah, like he's not doing those sweeps every day, right? But, but we're still seeing a lot of that culture hasn't really shifted. And I would say that it's been amplified, right? Not just in Arizona, but just in the country because, uh, because of the rhetoric that's coming from, from D.C. Um, so it has, not only has it not changed, but, but I would, I would uh, dare say that it's been amplified. Um, you know, our prior really terrorized our community. We, we actually like to refer to him, you know, as a, as a terrorist in our community. You know, people were feared, feared him. They, they lived in fear for many years, you know, wouldn't go out. It kind of really changed the dynamic of the, of the neighborhood. Like people would not go outside in fear of mm-hmm. him going out and doing his, his sweeps. Um, and to, to be able to defeat him, um, during the last election, uh, you know, many organizations came together 
um, many activists came together and, and, and be able to, to launch a campaign to, to get them elected. Um, there was a major victory uh, for the community, um, really kind of pushing back against his rhetoric. Um, but at the same time, you know, we saw that, what we like to say in Arizona, you know, Arizona was a testing ground for anti-immigrant legislation. And once it went into Arizona, it was spread throughout the nation. And we see that with Trump, you know, uh, Trump is kind of spewing the same rhetoric um, our, our pilot had been saying for over 15 years. Um, and he just took his words and, and, and said it on the national level. And what our, what our pilot is, is, what Trump is doing is really what our pilot wished he could do uh, on a national level. We're really seeing uh, Donald Trump uh, do exactly what our pilot has been saying forever and really deport anybody for whatever reason, no matter what, anybody, as long as they came to, to the country uh, without documentation, they're, they're gonna see their way out. No, it doesn't matter who they are or what, they've, what their contribution to the country has been. Yeah, I would also add that like the, the what the pardon meant um, was that it, it was a really big hit to the community and that like right now a lot of the people who were caught in uh, Arpaio's raids that were deemed um, unconstitutional, uh, they're not haven't received a pardon, right? And that those people are still uh, facing, they're still facing a lot of the uh, of the consequences of, of being held by immigration, right? Like last year, for example, right? One of the, our first cases that, um, that went into immigration to do a, they went into ICE to do a check-in, right? Was Lupita Garcia de Rayos, and she had been caught in one of our piles of unconstitutional raids. Uh, she went, she did a check-in, right? Uh, we tried to stop her deportation, like we physically went all out, tried to stop the van with our bodies to make sure like they didn't take her to Mexico. Um, and unfortunately, like we were not successful and she was deported. Um, and so those people, even though like the laws have already said like those rapes were unconstitutional, um, those people are still facing the consequences of having to be separated from their family. So it is a big, it's a big, um, it's a big hit that our family, our, our community face because like his victims are not receiving a pardon, he receives a pardon. So I think, yeah, I think what does that mean for our community, right? And when we look at um, how legitimate that pardon was or not, yeah. when our community already had, you know, when the court had already said that was unconstitutional. The, the pardon, I think to both of your points, uh, and, and when we say the pardon, we're talking about uh, the current president's pardon of Joe Arpaio, right? It's a very clear message about where his interests lie. Um, guys, let's talk a little bit about DACA, right? So it's all over the news. The president uh, put forth uh, some potential legislation, right, that he, that he would sign, which is to, I think they use the word morph, that, that DACA, not, not just people who, who signed up with the government, but everyone who's potentially eligible would be able to become a citizen over 10 to 12 years. That would come with upfront money for the wall and bigger restrictions on on uh, legal immigration, right? So immigration, people come in with visas or whatever. Um, so I'd love for you guys to, to tell me, like, how has Puente and the Puente movement responded to both of the current uh, DACA 
crisis and then this um, potential ideas put forth by, by the White House, letting the legislators know that he would sign something like this. Uh, earlier this year, when it was the first talks started with DACA, I think we were a little hesitant to respond. I think we wanted to give uh, those uh, um, DACA, DACA documented students, uh, young people, the, the, the opportunity to voice their to voice their struggles and to champion their struggles. You know, our our membership isn't predominantly made of, of undocumented students. Um, we have uh, young students who are either documented, or we have uh, parents who are undocumented. So it isn't necessarily our, our, our niche of work. Uh, so we, I think we, we're giving them voice. But now I think the, the, the argument has shifted. Um, it was in December, it looked like it was, might have been something like what, what they're calling a clean dream act, which yeah. is just uh, some form of legalization or, or document, be able to document uh, uh, people who are, on, who are DACA recipients. And now it has transformed into a full border Wall and even an attack on, on legal um, legal migration, you know, um, which I mean, I think this is not necessarily an organizational stand, but I call it what I I perceive it as is uh, uh, ethnic cleansing. You know, they they really fear the browning of America or um, uh, these mm. people of color coming to this country, and they really want to. And it's it's pretty clear to me that they really want to stop. Uh, people of color, and the president said it himself, uh, people of color from coming into this country, whether it's legally or illegally, is not now just a, a fight against uh, illegal immigration, as they like to say, or people coming here without, without proper documentation, but it's a fight against people of color coming to this country, and they don't want people of color coming to this country, and, and they like to talk about illegal immigration and illegal immigration. It's all about, you're here illegally, so we want you out, but I think this, this fight against legal migration is uh makes it really clear cut that it's not about the legality but it's about uh who's coming here and they prefer people from norway to come to this country and they prefer people from africa and haiti uh and mexico not to come to this country i also think that um what we found out is that with our youth program we're tapping into an entire generation of young people that are disconnected with the dream movement um we have a lot of youth that actually we're not able to apply for DACA because um, they actually were about to apply when, when it barely got, when it got, um, when it was ended because they were barely turning 15 um, or, you know, because before that they didn't really have a need. Um, and so I think that it's been interesting for us to find that because they're not, they're, they have been completely disconnected that they don't actually like even identify with dreamers. Right. And mm -hmm. so, it's where we're having those conversations with our young people, uh, it seems to be very different than where all the like, um, you know, where, where the narrative has been right now in the news. Um, and so, and, and a lot of it is also like, they were actually also kicked out of the program because they were too young. So I think, you know, I, I've been very um, interested in talking to organizations around the country, right, that there's like some organizations that are that are only do dreamers work right that are only doing work around DACA and then there's some organizations that are doing sort of broader organizing and policy work right that looks at the connection between mass incarceration and detention and also looks at 
uh, something that you said, Ernesto, around the, right, the browning of America and the over-policing of communities of color. And so I, I would love for you guys to talk a little bit about how, how does that show up in your work or does it show up in your work? Yeah, so, you know, I think the, the base that we have, the people that we work with, we work with the people that are most marginalized, the immigrants, the unwanted immigrants, the people that don't qualify for DACA, that probably even if a, 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 some type of reform were to pass, they probably wouldn't qualify for that type of reform either. Um, so we've always worked with those mo most marginalized people. Um, so we, we shy away from the, those narratives of good immigrant and bad immigrant. And we really look at immigrants, you know, uh, how does the country use immigrants? Um, and how do we, do we punish them and why are we punishing them? There's a fake narrative about who immigrants are and how they're um, not contributing to the country. Um, and, and we believe that every, all immigrants, even though those that have committed a crime, you know, people make mistakes, they make errors. There's a, a, a type of, there's crimes that they, they might've committed. Um, that doesn't really necessarily mean they should get deported. Uh, deportation is a, a real harsh crime. Uh, to take somebody and send them to another country um, and despite them having been living here for a really long time and potentially have family family here, it's, uh, it's, it's almost like a double crime. So a person then goes to jail and then after they come out of jail, they, 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 they get deported. So it's like a double jeopardy. You're getting punished twice for, for one crime you committed. So we shy away from those narratives and really try to humanize people. And it's about seeing people as humans, um, um, and, and, you know, we have to respect uh, each uh, person and their humanity, but it's, it's a hard argument to make, you know, um, I think Republicans, uh, and not just Republicans, even Democrats, uh, they're are really good at pushing this narrative that only the good immigrants uh, should stay here um, and, and the bad immigrants should leave, but we don't see that there's bad immigrants. That's a false narrative of that there's these drones and drones of bad immigrants in the country and they're deteriorating the country. And it's the opposite, you know, immigrants uh, improve this country, help, help make this country better. And they've always had, and they, always, and they will continue to do that. And then we just have to value their work and find ways to, to legalize them so they are not undocumented. Um, and then if we legalize these people, they can really contribute to the country in a, in a more, uh, in a better way. And I think that as we start getting into, we're working really hard to connect the criminal justice system with our immigration system, right? Um, and so I think that for us, we were very intentional about working um, with, with, when we were took on the issue of school police, we know we're gonna be talking about you who, because of their interactions with police, would probably not qualify for, um, you know, they would be the ones that are categorized as the bad Im immigrants, right? Um, and, and I think, for us, like, we were super intentional about that because we feel that those are the most vulnerable. And if we can help, if we can find a pathway for them to live a better life, then we're helping everybody, above, you know, everybody else. Like, actually, I want to go to this issue, right, of, of the connection between detention, immigration, and mass incarceration. Because oftentimes, and I tell this story all the time, um, so, you know, I live in the Bronx, I live in New York City, and... Um, and I remember when, um, when Bernie Sanders came to the Bronx, it was not that far from my apartment. And, you know, people, people lined up for hours um, to hear him speak. And I remember, you know, sort of being really uh, uh, blown away by the sort of um, typical 
um, narratives of speech that um, that he gave. Some parts were exciting and other parts were the sort of the typical thing, right? When, when he was addressing kind of the Latino community in the Bronx, of which were very large, um, he talked about immigration, right? And then when he was sort of addressing the African-American community, he talked about, uh, you know, the over-policing and um, the, the relationship between police and young men of color. And when I was listening to it, I sort of felt like, one, he doesn't really get who's in the audience, right? Um, that's mm-hmm. number one. Um, and number two, like, it was like the speech that he probably gave when he went to Phoenix, <laughs> when he went to somewhere else. And I felt like, you know, who, who's doing the research here for, for, for him? But what I was most disappointed by, frankly, was that there was this... Um, that this juxtaposition between the Latino community and the African-American community. And what I would have loved to hear was uh, some language that, re- that uh, gave, gave some, some recognition to the joint ways that our lives and our communities are struggling and are, are, are trying to create better lives, right? Not that the issues are not real, uh, but I think it's, it's important to... That, that those of us that are thinking about, you know, cross-race, cross-class movement building, um, that we begin to say that there's connections with these issues that are not just, you know, if you're Latino, you only care about immigration, and if you're African-American, you only care about policing. So all of that long story to say, yeah. to ask the question, you know, how, how do you guys see these connections between immigration and detention and, and incarceration or the movements, right? The movements to sort of, um, to stop um, uh, the, the harsh immigration, the, the movement to stop detention, the movement to end mass incarceration. I think that's a, that's a great point that, you're, that, you're, that you bring up, uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, uh, people were in love with Bernie Sanders, but people felt to see how he, he, there was a big disconnect. And not just with Bernie Sanders, well, I think with Democrats for a long time, with liberals for a long time, there's been a disconnect of, of them able to understand people of color, uh, predominantly uh, Black Americans and immigrants uh, of, all, of all sorts. Uh, they don't understand the issues. And, at the same, and because they don't understand the issues, they, they push these narratives one of the narratives they pushed for an immigration is the good and bad immigrant. And yeah. they use that and it's been detrimental to, to the immigrants' rights movement. Um, and then that ties us back into how they don't understand our community. Uh, they don't understand that a lot of black Americans are, um, are immigrants as well. You know, a lot, of, right. a, lot of, a lot of black folks come from the Caribbean. Uh, they come from Africa and they've integrated into, into blackness to some extent. Uh, so they don't understand the Black Latino community or the Black African community or the Black Caribbean community. Yep. Um, and then they don't understand how even incarceration affects um, immigration of, of all sorts, uh, specifically uh, Black immigrants and Latino immigrants. Black immigrants uh, tend to be incarcerated at higher rates than, yep. than uh, the Latino immigrants. And then darker Latino immigrants tend to be incarcerated at higher rates than than white immigrants. And then there's also been a correlation of, of deport, increasing in deportation and increasing in incarceration. And um, I don't know if there's any studies done, but they're, they're, I would argue that, they're, that those two incarceration rates and deportation rates have uh, increased dramatically. 
And then how I spoke about earlier, these two systems are really have combined into one system. So the immigration and deportation system and the incarceration system now work together into one large system of putting people behind bars or punishing people in some type of a cruel way. And that punishment includes deportation. Um, and we see how, how those systems really have come together here in Phoenix. Um, you know, they've created a whole bunch of laws um, to, to incriminate people, things that were not, um, that didn't happen uh, 17 years ago. I mean, 20 years ago, you know, before the 1980 immigration laws, uh, it wasn't heard of for, for people to get deported for, for minor crimes. It just didn't happen. Um, prior to, after 2009-11, um, this one is really streamlining in the sphere of, mm-hmm. of immigrants coming to this country, trying to terrorize the country, really allowed for them to pass these, these uh, laws that allowed for anybody that committed any sort of crime, any time in their lifetime, um, can now uh, get incarcerated and then they get to detention. So there's mandatory detention, which is incarceration. So you got people, you know, in detention centers who um, their only crime might've been coming to the country without documentation, which isn't a crime. It's a civil violation. Um, they're facing six months to a year, two years uh, in the, these horrible detention centers. Um, so now there's, we just expanded the definition of what a crime is and found out ways to put people behind bars um, and really find ways to make people work for free. Hmm. Mm. Say, say something more about that last sentence. Find, some, find a way for people to work for free. What, what do you mean by that? What does that mean? Yeah, so uh, a few years ago, before this job, I, I used to work as a reentry program. And it was uh, um, people, I work help people coming out of prison, uh, reintegrate into, into community um, so we can resu- reduce recidivism rates. And to my surprise, I was surprised how many of them worked inside the, inside the mm-hmm. jail systems. Mm-hmm. And not just in jail jobs, you know. Um, one of the, a lot of the major industries uh, are supported by uh, our prisoners. Yeah. For example, here in Phoenix, we have uh, Hick Farms, uh, one of the largest, largest eggs, egg farms in, in the state are run almost, I don't know entirely, but almost entirely by, by prisoners. Mm. Um, a lot of the, the workers in the fire, the fire department, the people that work in the, yeah. in the forestry, they're almost a lot, a lot of them are uh, people in, in prison. Uh, the tomato industry, uh, a lot of those farms are run are by people in the tomato industry and they get paid less than a dollar per hour. They get charged to work. Um, so it's, just, it's this really lucrative business. Um, somehow they found a way to incarcerate people, made it super easy to incarcerate people, made it easy for them to stay incarcerated and find ways to to uh, make, put them to work uh, for really cheap labor. And it's crazy when you think about it for undocumented people. So they're going to jail because they're working, because uh, they're here working uh, without proper documentation. Then you put them into a prison for not even committing a crime. And now you're putting them to work. So they're working because they, they're, they're working because they're working for the state because they were working outside of the state without yeah. proper documentation. It's kind of crazy to think about it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I didn't know, um, I, I knew about the farms. I did not know about the fire uh, workers, the fire department uh, workers until the fire, I, I think NPR did a story about it um, when the big fires were happening in California. 
Um, and uh, I was sort of, I, I think me and, and lots of other people were, were sort of dumbfounded, right, at the, at the idea that, um, that the fire departments in some places are, um, are uh, uh, some of their workers are people in, in, in prisons and in detention. So, you know, we're, we're coming short on time, um, but I want to ask one more question um, of you both. And Lady, we'll start with you. But what is the dream? Like when you're organizing and you're working with young people, give me, give me your dream. What's, what's your dream of, of you know, if, if you got to accomplish everything that you're fighting for, what, what, would, what would that look like for Phoenix, for Puente, for the United States? Yeah, I think that the times that we live in are very, they're historical times. So for me, what I, my dream is that our communities, communities of color, immigrant communities, have, that we have the majority not just in numbers, but also in political power, uh, which is why it's so important to start with the youth right now. In a couple of years, they will have political power, but it's going to be up to us, right, to to see if we're actually teaching them how to hold systems accountable, how to hold politicians, not just, not just parties, but like really, really bring power to the people. And it's starting to have them practice the visioning an alternative, a better world, so that when they have that power, they can actually make it real. Mm. So I love that. I love it's going to be up to us to make sure that they can hold politicians accountable um, and that they have the political power. Ernesto, um, what's your dream, right? You're fighting, you're fighting for justice. What, what would that look like for you? Yeah, I think for me, it's a, a world where uh, immigrants and, and people of color are not fearful of police. Uh, they're not fearful of deportation, um, they can go to work uh, happily, um, whatever job they choose to to have, um, and can and live successful lives, live healthy lives, um, without fear of, of being deported and, and without fear of, of going to jail. Nesso and Lady, you're you're at least what I hear is you're talking about um, you're talking about liberation. You're talking about a time where um, you know people don't have to fear, where people are safe. Um, where people of color um, can utilize um, and uh, their political power. So I, I want to thank you both so very, very much for taking time out of what I think was your morning and my afternoon uh, to talk with me um, and to talk with everyone and out of the margins. Everybody, we've been listening to Ernesto Lopez and Lady Robledo from Puente Human Rights Arizona. And I always uh, end our time together with a quote. Today, I'm quoting Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass told us, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. And I think both Ernesto and Lady kind of embody all of the struggle and hopefully for some amazing progress that's taking place at Puente Human Rights Arizona. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our guests. And as always, thank you to the team at Soul Design. That's S-O-L Design, based out of Atlanta, who adds music um, and, and makes us all sound amazing uh, when you hear it. Thank you very much. Oh